You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast, the News and Observer's political podcast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and with me are Andy Spay, Will Doran, Don Vaughn, Colin Campbell, and in Washington, D.C., on the phone, Brian Murphy. The legislative session is finally over after 10 months, uh, the longest since 2001. Is that right, Colin? Yeah. um, There was one year they went to December, but we've uh, not been that unfortunate since then. The budget is not done. Uh, Various mini-budgets are done, but some will be vetoed. And now they're going to have to come back and potentially redraw districts yet again. So uh, it's been a busy couple weeks and we haven't recorded in uh, a little while, so we'll bring you up to speed. Um, Don and Colin, all of you really, I wonder if you can kind of take us through the the final hours of session. Usually there's some kinds of uh, uh, last minute surprises um, was there anything surprising in the in the final hours as they adjourned on Halloween? Yeah, so the, the funky thing was that here, here's the bill that you really thought was not going to be the one to get derailed when Republicans are in charge, and that was the income tax refund of sending every taxpayer a check for, I think it was 125 or 250 depending on your, uh, your status. Um, and that got sat on until the very last day, finally emerges in the House, but they've tacked on... A bailout for the former Randy Parton Theater in Roanoke Rapids, which, if you didn't follow that saga from a decade ago, um, the city of Roanoke Rapids built this fancy, fancy theater on the side of I-95, got Dolly Parton's brother to ostensibly run it and be the feature attraction, but then he had a drinking problem, so he got pushed out, and they've been losing money on it ever since. And I think they've since sold it, but they've had a lot of debt to deal with, Uh, so the lawmakers from up there have been trying to negotiate uh, millions of tax dollars to bail out the city's debt. Um, That got attached um, in committee, initially failed in committee, that was brought up in the same committee several hours later, uh, voted on successfully with a bunch of the floaters from the House leadership team to come in, you know, clean up any time the committee doesn't do what they want them to do. Um, And then uh, I think because there was a lot of um, heartburn from the Senate, including Senator Berger, on whether the bailout should be attached to the income tax uh, refund, the House didn't end up voting on the bill at all, and the whole thing is unclear whether it comes back in a future session or not. Um, so for now, no check in the mail for any of us. I think they hoped people would forget about it, because it rolled out, I think it was late August, and it was that same press conference with Berger and Moore, where they said, hey, we're going to do all these mini-budgets, and hey, you guys are going to get all these checks in the mail before the holidays, and isn't that great? And the Senate like rushed it through, I think, within like a day or two, and then the House did absolutely nothing. Yeah, so people may be thinking that, oh, because the governor didn't sign a budget and that they don't have uh, the ability to get a regular budget for it, we're getting this money, but you're not actually getting this money. And if you do, it'll be November uh, or like November, probably January or beyond before it comes back up again. If it would even happen. And I would say like the House is probably more to blame for that again, since the Senate got it through and uh, they probably knew when they pitched it that, you know, the governor would have to think a while on whether or not he wants to be the one that didn't let you get $125 in the mail if you paid at least that much in taxes individual or 250 filing jointly. Um, instead, they just you know pulled that rug out from everybody. 
legislators did pass an income a tax cut for businesses um, in the form of a franchise tax cut, right? Yeah, that came in the last couple of days, and um, as of now, we haven't gotten a veto on that. But I would be highly surprised if there was anything other than a Cooper veto of that. He's criticized that particular tax break before when it was in the original budget. It's a lot of money that would be lost, um, and they want to eliminate it eventually. But and one of the stories I wrote about it, it's a tax that a lot of states have gotten rid of. And the argument is that it's you know this extra tax, and it's not good for business. And the Republicans argued that, you know, this is a sign at the border saying don't come, you know, bring your company here and do business here. But North Carolina is still pretty high on these lists of a good place to do business. So it's your perspective on whether or not you think that's a good or a bad thing. And I, I cannot see Cooper being fine with, with that because part of in his um, everything with the um, budget veto, it was, wasn't was just Medicaid expansion, it was teacher raises, and then there's always a mention of corporate tax cuts, and Democrats bring that up constantly about how the Republicans want corporate tax cuts, so I can't see Cooper signing it. So it, it may not be hard for him to veto a bill cutting corporate taxes, as he would describe it, but is he really going to veto a bill giving teachers raises? Because that's another one that's in front of him, of him right now. Yeah, that's the wild card, right? I think I think it was easy for the Democrats to vote against the 3.9% raises, saying it's not enough, knowing that their vote wasn't going to make a difference, and you know if all the Republicans vote for it, it was going to pass anyway. So you could use that as a campaign, like I wanted, you know, this wasn't good enough, I wanted more, and that's different than when it's actually there on Cooper's desk and he's got to decide, do I want to give them this money now? And as they, um, you know, with the Final, I guess it was like Moore's final press conference before the end of the session about how these checks will be in there, not your taxpayer refund check, but your raises before the holidays. So it's going to be hard for Cooper to say, I don't think it's good enough, but also I'm not letting you have it at all in case somehow it doesn't end up happening. At the same time, this is the teacher raises really are sort of the last bargaining chip for Cooper yeah. uh, to try to get the budget he wants and a full budget through and Medicaid expansion and all of that. Um, so I think that makes this a, a harder decision because if you do uh, prevent that from happening and continue to lobby for his teacher pay plan, um, then you know other stuff remains on the table. Um, whereas once it's off, it's I mean at that point Republicans have kind of won with the mini budget strategy and there's not much leverage to push them to do anything the governor wants budget wise. Yeah, that's true. So let's say he vetoes. When would they potentially come back and try to override that? So they come back in November, overrides are not on the list of things they can do. Um, they can, of course, change that list if they wanted to, uh, but most likely that happens in January because the list for January's session uh, does specifically include uh, veto override votes. Um, and so then it's a question of do Democrats hold together on that or do the Republicans manage to flake off a few people um, and get some of those passed. So far, no uh, overrides have been fully successful um, since uh, the supermajorities were ended, but uh, that could change. Uh, the, the wild card Republicans are counting on is uh, filing period for candidates is December. When they come back in January, these guys are going to know whether they're going to have a primary challenger or not. Um, and if they don't have a primary challenger, they have a little more freedom to make their own party mad and not have to worry that someone's going to come at them in the primary. Right. And some may leave. I mean, because it can leave at um, all he has to do is resign before he's sworn into the Utilities Commission, and that can be any time, like, I mean, a long time from now. So that was another one of the last things they did was they appointed Floyd McKissick 
um, the yeah. state senator to the Utilities Commission. That was an appointment by Governor Cooper um, uh, that was approved in the last few days of, yeah. of session. That was on, yeah, that was on Halloween. It was a long goodbye with, you know, plenty of roasting, and he has a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle, and people who aren't familiar with Floyd McKissick Jr. His um, dad was a um, very well-known civil rights leader, um, and McKissick Jr. has been in the Senate for, I can't remember how many years, several years now, and was on Durham City Council before, and um, he's a pretty established um, Durham and statewide political figure, so... Him leaving office is that one less um, vote, potentially, but he also um, is, again, what I said, um, a Durham Democrat, and it's going to be another Democrat that's going to replace him. There's already people, multiple people, and somebody new, um, another local politician who has said um, they want to run for a seat. And the, the three candidates already that have said they want to run publicly are also African-American. Okay. Well, that's two women and a man that want to see so when legislators come back in November, one thing that they can do that is on their agenda is to uh, redraw the districts potentially for Congress. Is it a sure thing, Will, that they will redraw? That's the impression I have. That I mean, it really sounds like they were planning to be done until January if it hadn't been for this uh, ruling that we got last week, which uh, basically followed with the, uh, the ruling striking down the, the state legislative districts in September. The, uh, the same three-judge panel came out and uh, didn't make a ruling, but uh, gave uh, basically like a, a preliminary injunction, which is kind of an early step in trial, saying, hey, we've looked at the facts of this case, and Republican lawmakers, you guys are likely to lose. These certainly appear to be unconstitutional maps. So we urge you to redraw them and just avoid the need for a trial over this. That's basically what the judges said. You know, you can have a trial if you want, but we're probably going to rule against you. So why don't you just go ahead and redraw the maps and save everybody's time? Um, and Republicans seem like they've agreed. Um, part of it was that the judges said that they reserve the right, if there is a trial, to delay the primaries in 2020, push the congressional primaries or potentially even all of the primary elections back from the scheduled March date until further in the year. And there's just not a whole lot of appetite to do that among uh, the Republican leadership in the legislature. They want to keep all the primaries on the same date. When you have a delayed primary like that, you know, where you have the president, the governor, all the main races on one day, and then a separate day just for the small number of congressional races, you know, your turnout is going to go from maybe a third of voters who normally show up in a primary to probably single digits. And, you know, when there's so few people voting, crazy things can happen. And, you know, maybe a favored incumbent loses because their challenger from, from the base only needs to rile up a very small number of people to, to have a successful election. So they look like they'll be coming back in November to redraw those congressional lines and we should know by the end of the month uh, basically what our new congressional districts are going to look like and then obviously the speculation will start then on you know will democrats be able to flip any of the seats under the new maps brian uh, what incumbents in congress are particularly threatened if these uh if new districts are drawn well, I, you know, to, to Will's point, that's exactly what happened in 2016 when there were standalone elections after they redrew and drew the district. Uh, voter turnout plummeted from 36% to 7%. Uh, to, to answer your question, uh, George Holding would seem to be uh, at the top of any list of 
down to 55 and thus have a lot of extra Democratic votes to go around and perhaps challenge someone like George Holding or someone like Dan Bishop who just won the, the ninth congressional district. Will any of them, do you think any of them uh, maybe taking a look at other races right now? We do have a big Senate race and Senator Tillis is looking somewhat vulnerable. George Holding has said he may not run. He wants to see what the district looks like. Uh, Ted Budd is another one who has not was, was sort of on the fence, says, I want to see what the district looks like, thinks that he could represent various parts of the state. Um, it does seem a little late to jump into to the Senate race, um, although Mark Walker certainly flirted with that um, you know, over the summer. And if his district were to get redrawn or he were to get double bumped with a, an incumbent, it, it's possible that he could look at that race, which, you know, Tom Tillis is investing at least $2 million in ads in the primary, um, doesn't seem to be able to shake Garland Tucker and, and could decide to jump in. I think it'd be awfully late for that to happen. You're talking about a primary that would happen in, in early March. Uh, early voting would start, you know, in, in early February. Um, so I, I think it may be too late to get into the Senate race, but, but there are some people, some incumbent congressmen who, who may decide not to run. Okay. Well, um, what what has been going on in the Senate race, Brian? Uh, we've uh, we've seen the campaign finance reports come out. Uh, looks like Tillis and Cal Cunningham on the Democratic side uh, are the big fundraisers. Yeah, probably the biggest news is that the the National Democratic Party has now rallied behind Cal Cunningham. That's not completely unexpected. Uh, they picked him in 2010. He he did not win that primary, um, but. You know, he has shown the ability to raise money. He's shown uh, the ability to collect endorsements over Erica Smith, uh, state senator, and uh, Mecklenburg County Commissioner Trevor Fuller, who, who just have not been able to raise the funds that national Democrats think are going to be needed to, to beat an incumbent like Tom Tillis. In 2014, this was the most expensive Senate race in U.S. history to that time, um, the race between Tom Tillis and, and now the late uh, Senator Kay Hagan. Um, but on, on the Republican side, you know, Tillis's numbers seem to be stuck in that in the 30 percent, uh, whether it's polling or approval ratings or a head-to-head matchup with with Garland Tucker. We've seen a lot of polls where, where Tillis is in the 30s. Um, it will be interesting. I don't know how much Garland Tucker is doing to excite uh, voters on the ground, but I know he's doing a lot of advertising on Fox News, and, and that is one place where you're going to find a lot of voters in the Republican primary in North Carolina. And, from what, I, from what I've, I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of strategists, people along those lines who follow this closely, they say that, that Tucker is just hammering Tillis on, on Fox News and conservative talk radio over and over and over again, day after day. And, and they think that those ads are, are starting to have an effect. Okay. And on the Democratic side for the March 3rd primary, uh, the big uh, action, of course, is going to be in the presidential race. And we've seen already uh, North Carolina become... Uh, a destination for the presidential candidates. Um, we've had Joe Biden here uh, most recently. We've got Elizabeth Warren coming very soon. Um, Don, you covered Biden. You're planning to cover um, the Warren appearance. Um, what have you noticed? Uh, what did first of all? What did you notice at the uh, Biden rally? Uh, kind of sort of the same thing as the Bernie Sanders rally in Chapel Hill, where people came. Hey, this you know person could be president, and they're coming to my city or near my city, so I'm gonna go check out and see what they have to say. There were a couple, like, you know, of course, hardcore um, Biden supporters, but 
a lot of the people I talked to, it was, oh, you know, I'm here because he's speaking here, and, you know, and um, he has the name recognition, of course, everybody um, knows him from being vice president, not just a candidate. So it was a lot of um, just, just checking him out, just wanting to be there for a potential historic moment. It wasn't a whole lot of people, it was less than a thousand. It was at Hillside High School, which is a um, very well-known, um, historically, major like like 90, probably 5% majority African-American student population school. The original Hillside High School, Martin Luther King spoke there. Um, so it, it's a, Hillside is a symbol of Durham in, in a certain extent, and also, Biden sort of rattled through the, you know, here's the timeline of great moments in Durham's um, African-American history legacy. He mentioned the Royal Ice Cream 7, which is the sitting group that um, didn't start the wave of the Greensboro Sin, but that happened um, years before, and they don't um, always get that attention. Of course, Parrish Street in downtown Durham, um, which was known as Black Wall Street. And so he mentioned a lot of um, the historic things. He mentioned, of course, being close to NC Central University. Um, just as close as Kamala Harris was when she spoke in Durham just a couple months ago um, at an AME church down the street. Um, so it was a lot of the same um, geographic ground um, that she had too, and, and some of the population as well. Although looking at the crowd, it was probably still majority white um, as far as the support. I know he's, he's courting African-American voters, um, but as far as who decided to, to come out and see him on uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, Warren, when she comes, is also speaking at a high school. She'll be at Broughton, um, which is an old, fancy, um, inside the Beltline um, Raleigh High School. And then she'll also be speaking at um, a Latinx event on Friday, at a location they're still sorting out, and she'll make a Greensboro stop. A lot of the presidential candidates have made stops in Greensboro. She'll be at A&T. Um, others have gone to the Civil Rights Museum there. Um, so I think there's a lot more interest in Warren with this being her first visit. Of course, Biden's been in the state before, hasn't had this kind of campaign event in the Triangle before. And um, Castro was in Durham in May. I think I've mentioned everybody that's come through. Um, so we'll see. It'll probably be a larger crowd than the others, just again because of the interest in this being her, her first visit here. And she'll probably be back. Okay. Well, I think that's everything from uh, the week's news, but we also have some sad news here on Domecast. Uh, we are going to be saying goodbye to one of our own, Andy Spey, who will be leaving us. And uh, I don't know if by the time you hear this, he will already have announced that publicly, but uh, he'll be moving on to a new opportunity. Andy, do you want to talk about what you're going to be doing? Uh, yes. Uh, for the last couple of years, I've been uh, covering obviously state politics, but also uh, writing fact checks for PolitiFact, a national organization based in Florida. Uh, PolitiFact um, is moving over to WRAL, uh, where they'll be for the next year covering the 2020 election, and uh, I am following the organization uh, over there to the that TV station and uh, what is probably the NNO's main competitor, uh, but... Yeah, um, I can't believe I just let you put in a plug for the competition. I'm not putting in, I'm just stating facts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, one thing that's really encouraging uh, about PolitiFact and why I believe in the organization is because, um, you know, they source everything and everything's open source, meaning anyone can read it. You can go to 
WRAL, just like you've been going to News and Observer, or you can go to politifact.com. And I know that uh, this team in the NNO will continue doing uh, fact-checking, whether or not it has a rating or, you know, call someone out with a truth meter It doesn't really matter. Um, but I'm excited that I'll be able to go to a new platform. I'll be the first uh, PolitiFact reporter who is a TV reporter in the country, uh, I believe. So um, the NNO will keep its team and continue doing fact-checking, and then I'll expand uh, fact-checking's reach even a little bit more from the TV station down the street. And so um, it's really a bittersweet moment um, for in me. In political fashion, we could run you out on a rail you or could. tar and feather you, but we will not. <laughs> you could. But we uh, will not. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the News and Observer was always on my kitchen table when I came home uh, or when I came down for breakfast every morning when I grew up in Fuquay. And so um, ever since I wanted to grow up, I wanted to be a politics reporter for the News and Observer. And uh, it's it's really sad to leave, but uh, I still um, believe in the paper and will still subscribe and still be pulling for everyone here um, because I still believe in everyone here. Um, and so I, I'm excited but sad at the same time. Um, but the, and like really encouraged that there's going to be more fact checking uh, than ever, and we're going to have, you know, between all the companies in the region, we're going to have a bigger reach than ever. Um, when it comes to fact-checking and holding people accountable. Um, so I hope our listeners will watch me on the news as I explain fact-checks. I don't know if it'll be 6 o'clock or noon or whatever, and I hope that they'll continue reading the News and Observer as well. Now, if you have to stand up to be on TV, as I've learned from Brooke Kane's recent story in the News and Observer, um, because they don't have chairs on their set, are you going to get a foot cushion to make sure your back doesn't hurt? I think he negotiated I, that. I, you know, I didn't know about the new studio ahead of time, so I think I missed my negotiation opportunity. I thought they created that just for you. Oh, if only I had that kind of power. Well, everyone, make sure to you know send Andy critiques on all his outfits whenever yeah. he's on TV. I'm sure he'll really appreciate that. And soon Brooke will be writing one, so yeah. that's exciting to look forward to. That's not exciting. Um, but yeah, it should be fun. I went over there, and uh, their studios are pretty crazy. It's gonna, it's gonna be very different. Um, yeah. Well, we're excited to see what you do over there, and uh, but we're gonna miss you here. Miss you guys. Um, well, and thanks for letting me have this last podcast. Uh, this is something that was new and always seemed sort of haphazard, you know, in its early years. Uh, and still is. And still is to some degree. <laughs> things. Um, it changed. But it's always been fun to speak to people directly. Yeah. You'll probably have a little more professional editing in the new place. Right. So even if you're not better, you'll sound better. That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, at least, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe sound better. As long as they let me still say y'all, because I can't, I can't do the you guys. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, y'all look for Andy on the <laughs> on WRAL, and we'll be right back with headliner of the week. 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 Who's hot? 
and we are back with Headliner of the Week, everyone's favorite segment, where we dis- decide who is the most influential, important, interesting person in this week's news. Uh, Andy Spey, why don't you go first for your last Domecast? You know, in my nine years at the News and Observer, uh, and my a little over two years covering state politics, it's rare that I've seen a politician bring people together. But last week, U.S. Senator Richard Byrd did just that. Uh, the NCAA, the College Athletics Association, changed its rules and said they would, they're going to allow athletes uh, to be compensated for their names and likeness and images and images, uh, things like that, which means athletes will get paid for, you know, whenever a school or a company, you know, uses a picture of them or, you know, if they're hired to, like, hawk some product or whatever. Uh, that was announced. And, uh, and so Richard Burr took to Twitter to say that if, quote, if college athletes are going to make money off their likenesses, their scholarships should be treated like income. I'll be introducing legislation that subjects scholarships given to athletes who choose to cash in like income taxes, end quote. In other words, he wants to tax our college athletes uh, whenever they earn income from uh, obviously being shown in their athletic uniforms. Uh, This brought people together like I've never seen before. Um, People like... Uh, liberals, uh, you know, hardcore leftists, uh, to the founder of the Federalist, Ben Dominic, I think is his name, uh, which is obviously far more right-leaning, uh, all slammed Richard Burr for his take on wanting to tax, uh, to tax athletes. And a lot of people read into it racial undertones and saying, like, oh, well, you know, Republicans, blah, 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 want, they never want to tax anybody, but when it comes to uh, students who are predominantly black, that's when they want to kick in uh, and propose new taxes. Uh, I just thought it was funny to watch. It'll be interesting to see if his promise to introduce legislation uh, ever happens, given the amount of pushback he received from both the left and the right. So uh, Richard Burr is my nominee. Can, can you see the ratio on that tweet? Uh, like Twenty thousand. you're looking, 000. meanwhile, Brian... Uh, Wrote about what he oh. had to say for himself <laughs> later. What what did he uh, uh, what did he end up saying as as, as a response to the the public uh, um, bashing of him on Twitter? Yeah, so the NCAA still has some work to do. You know, players aren't going to be cashing in uh, today or tomorrow or, or likely anytime soon, given the NCAA's glacial pace at which it works. Um, but what Richard Burst said is that the NCAA got this wrong. That, that uh, you know, the, the ignorant critics as well as even athletes don't understand the value of their scholarship and that um, all he was doing was, was pointing out the, the tremendous value that's in a scholarship. Uh, those scholarships are backed by, you know, federal subsidies, I guess, in some ways, um, and, and I think that's what he was getting at. It'll be, you know, as Andy said, it'll be super interesting to see um, where he goes from here, but he, he's, he played with football, college football at Wake Forest in, in the 1970s. It's certainly an issue he's thought a lot about. Um, this was not some off-the-cuff tweet. This is an issue that I think he cares a lot about. Uh, mentioned that he's one of only two U.S. senators who played, you know, high-level college football. Corey Booker, who played at Stanford, is the other. Um, but he's not backing down. He thinks the 
roll over is what he said. All right. And give us that ratio. Here. All right, I found it. And it's important to know that Burr is not running for re-election. So he, uh, and also, Twitter ratios do not have any reflection upon uh, real no people's life. votes <laughs> or Don't real life that. in any way. <laughs> All right. So uh, we have 11,000 likes and 33,000 replies. Wow. So that, that's quite the ratio. Okay. All right. Uh, so Richard Burr and his ratio in the hat for headliner of the week. Brian Murphy, who's your headliner? Well, uh, Richard Burr on Monday attended a funeral for the former for former Senator Kay Hagan, who passed away um, after a three-year battle with Powassan virus, um, a tick-borne illness that she um, she got a very rare disease for for humans. Um, struck by the outpouring that I saw from from Republicans, from Democrats. Um, a number of the senators that she served with, particularly female senators, um, made their way down to Greensboro for that funeral. Um, Amy Klobuchar, who's the Democratic presidential candidate, was among them. Uh, it's clear that even though Hagan only served one year, uh, one term, I'm sorry, in the in the U.S. Senate, that she made quite an impact on those that she served with. Um, and, and hard to find anyone who who had a, a bad word to say about Kay Hagan. Um, certainly, her and her family are, are in her thoughts and. Um, uh, just, just it's nice to see um, people turn out, um, not not under these circumstances, but nice to see you know someone uh, in, in politics is often demonizing the other side. In this case, uh, everyone had very nice things to say about Kay Hagan. Kay Hagan, uh, we uh, definitely have our thoughts with her family uh, right now. Uh, Don, who's your headliner? I thought about the Hillside High School drumline, who both played uh, Biden on stage and off stage. They're well known, um, well beyond Durham, uh, just the marching band in general, but especially the drumline. Of course, A&T's marching band is the basis for that movie, Drumline. Uh, but anyway, the Hillside High School drumline is fantastic, and that's probably the highlight of covering that, that Biden event. Um, but my headliner is, is something else related to Durham. I'm going to have to say Senator McKissick. Um, judging by the long-winded roast slash, you know, farewell with everyone on the Senate floor. He is one of those politicians that I'm sure Democrats will criticize for being friendly with Republicans. And, um, but he got some of his priorities done, which you have to do with bipartisan support, and that's depending on what level of majority that you have. Um, and most of his colleagues seem to appreciate working with him. So I'm going to make uh, Senator McKissick. Okay. Floyd McKissick. You got the twofer there with the marching band as well. Uh, yeah, all right. Uh, Colin Campbell, who's your headliner of the week? Well, in uh, Domecast fashion, uh, I have to go with a uh, departing staffer uh, and pick Andy as my headliner of the week. Um, a little known fact uh, for those who follow our work more recently, Andy and I uh, have known each other probably the longest of anybody at the, uh, the NNO because we both started our careers and our uh, kind of our journalism careers uh, working in the Smithfield Herald office of the NNO back when uh, that was a thing and we were uh, young rookie reporters uh, looking for stories in a small town to the point that we sometimes would go out to lunch and come back with a double bylined review of the nachos we just ate at a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> um, so if you dig deep enough into the NNO archives, you can fi- find such gems from me and Andy. But in, in all seriousness, uh, Andy's been blast to work with and it's been fun to sort of follow each other through the uh, reporting world here at the NNO, taking our time with uh, Raleigh City Council, moving on to state politics um, and uh, 
few people I'd rather uh, team up with for a, a political story or, or anything else. So uh, we'll be sad to see him go, but I'm, I'm really glad to see him staying in journalism and I'll continue to get to read his work and uh, see him uh, running his mouth on TV and, and all that. So uh, for, for that, I want to make Andy my pick this week. Oh, that's sweet. I, <laughs> well, I want to make Andy those, cry. Those, yeah, <laughs> those natural reviews were some of the most rewarding stories I ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one Paul A. Spay in the hat for Headline of the Week. And finally, Will Doran, who's your pick? Well, we really should have ended on that. I don't think yeah. I can follow that. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to go back into the boring world of politics. Um, I'm going to go with Harry Smith, uh, who until last month was the chairman of the UNC System Board of Governors. Uh, he stepped down from that role uh, in September and then uh, Monday uh, stepped down from the board entirely. Um, still not entirely clear basically why he is leaving the board so quickly, going from being chairman to being off of it. Although a uh, reporter out in uh, Charlotte, Nick Oxner, uh, wrote a story that implied uh, basically some people in the UNC system thought that he might have been involved with some of the uh, the videos that leaked about the, uh, the ECU president uh, who then had to step down. Uh, so who knows? Uh, maybe more will come to light on that. But... Uh, Maybe that's just, you know, nothing. But either way, it's the, the head of the state university system is, is gone now. All right. Harry Smith in the hat for headliner of the week. But, yes, I do have to go with Andy. And so Colin is our winner. Um, we are going to miss Andy at Domecast and at the News and Observer. And um, we'll keep following your work at WRAL. So good luck to you. And uh, you get the last word here. Uh, I... I've run out of words to be honest. <laughs> I've just I've these have been some of the best um, uh, the best years of my life being with the NNO and uh, not only being here with you guys um, uh, as colleagues but um, but as friends too. I couldn't ask for better colleagues and uh, or a better editor, Jordan. Um, and for our listeners, uh, a lot of them, you know, I've interacted with on Twitter and or met down at the Capitol or other places, um, you know, they're listening and paying attention and reading our work. It means a ton to me, too. Um, we, get a lot, <laughs> we get a lot of hate mail, and so uh, when we do uh, run into people who appreciate us, uh, it means a lot. All right. For Don Vaughn, Colin Campbell, Brian Murphy, Will Doran, and, of course, Andy Spay, I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us next week on Domecast. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.